If you were to come up with nicknames for the generations, what uh, nickname would you come up with for the different generations? There's some generations that would be called happy, some that would be called silent, some that might be called grumpy. It reminds me of a nickname, a fellow that came up with nicknames for everybody in his place of work, and he called one fellow the weather. And he said, I call him the weather because you can't do anything about him. There are some, I'm afraid, that would say that about the millennial generation. They whine and complain about the millennial generation. When, in fact, many of the challenges that millennials face today were faced at other times in the history of other generations. I've never joined into the whining and complaining about millennials. They are different. But one reason I haven't is that Tim Tebow is a millennial. I kind of like that. Now, Tim Tebow can't play a lick of football, but when he gets on the football field, he wins, doesn't he? And there's heart, desire, discipline, and abandon to his uh, sport that causes him to win. How many home runs does he have right now with the Mets, with the minor league team? I mean, his first couple of games, he's clearing balls over the field like crazy. But Tim Tebow is a millennial. That's what I think about when I think about millennials. But there's another reason. Our research shows that those millennials that are dedicated to Christ are a bit, a, a bit substantially more zealous and dedicated to reaching the world for Christ than previous generations. And, and so I've, I've never joined into the complaints about the millennial generation. I've spent a lot of my life with them and, and just appreciate them uh, so much, and I've been encouraged and been challenged by them. Now, having said that, there are some challenges. And one of the big challenges happens to be their involvement in church after high school graduation. I want to ask and answer a few questions about that real quickly. One is who? Who are we talking about? Well, we're basically talking about 18 to 29-year-olds where there's this enormous gap in church attendance as compared to other generations. Uh, what What is the second question? What is the magnitude of the problem? It depends on the surveys, but as few as 15% remain on in churches following high school graduation. That means, that means 85% drop out after high school graduation. Um, that's an enormous challenge. It, it's interesting as well because teenagers in that generation were some of the most active in church of any Americans. But when they got into their 20s, they as a generation were the least active. In other words, overnight, everything changed and everything flipped with them. I remember talking to a pastor just a couple years ago that was a leader in our state. He pastored in a town of 2,000 people, and on Sunday mornings, they'd have 5,000 in church. In other words, their size was disproportionate to their community. And he said that he and another leading pastor in the state woke up one morning, and they discovered everything changed, like almost overnight. And that's much of the way it happens to be with some in this particular uh, generation. It used to be that this 20-year-old group through the generations would bail out of church and college, but they'd get married and have children and come back. That's no longer happening. They're bailing out entirely, completely, and they're not coming back. Now, why is it that this is more difficult now than before? One reason happens to be access. They have internet access to some of the most careless, hostile, gross, brain-dead, anti-Christian propaganda ever launched 
upon the church of Jesus Christ. And without the thinking and discernment skills that come with mature age, they end up buying into it. And so the access is a problem. The second thing is alienation. They are taught and they are encouraged and actually oftentimes bullied into doubting the integrity of their parents, sometimes because of broken families. They doubt the integrity of pastors and staff. They doubt the integrity of institutions, and so they don't see, uh, many of them don't see those institutions as being worthy of any serious consideration. So uh, alienation happens to be another challenge. The church is in that mix as well. A third reason is autonomy. That is, they're independent. They've been raised in a life where they were not told what to do. Well, if you know anything about Christianity, it's a religion where you are told what to do. Now, there's this politically correct version where uh, there's a Christ without a cross, a kingdom without a master, there's humanity without sin, there's a heaven without a hell, and no one's going to tell anybody what to do. That is a counterfeit and counterproductive. If Christianity is anything, it is where the God of heaven tells His people what to do. And if you don't want someone telling you what to do, you, you can't have the Christian faith. Jesus tells us what to do. Now, I'm always nervous about saying that because in every crowd this size, there are a few people with the personality of a Poulan chainsaw. And I don't want to set you on fire or crank you up or get your motor running, okay? Don't run around and be a buzzsaw with everybody or a chainsaw with anybody. Always be gentle and always be kind and, and, and share with others like you would want someone to share with you. But the Christian faith is fundamentally a Lord and Master commanding something of sinners. Well, that is fresh. That is new. That is oftentimes politically incorrect and unusual for many of that generation and other generations, but more so in this particular one. In other words, the 60s are back, but they're now, they've had 50 years of steroid treatment. Well, when does this become a problem? When does church dropping out become a problem? Well, usually when the 20-something moves from home to the university or moves too far away from a home church. 47% noted that. 23% when work responsibilities keep them out of um, church involvement. 22% when they just get too busy, they say. And 17% when they specifically start spending more time with those outside the church than inside the church. Well, how do we fix the problem is the next question. Well, I've, I've, I've done a bit of reading on this, and what I've noticed is that the vast majority of those who write on this subject end up pointing a finger at parents, and, and there's something to say about that. Some point a finger at the churches, and there, there's something to say about that. Uh, some point at ministers and pastors and youth ministers and college ministers, and, and there's something to say about that. But almost none of the literature focuses on the most important element of this question, and that happens to be the student, or the 20-something, himself or herself. So in Proverbs chapter 3, our text this morning, I want to address that subject. I want to focus on those in that age group themselves this morning. Let me ask you, do you all have anyone in your family that is 18 to 29 that was or will be? Anybody at all? This message is relevant for you because we take the Word and we share it and we encourage others with it. Now, here in Proverbs chapter 3, you need to know a little bit about Proverbs itself. You've got what is called here some parallelism. That means there's a line here and there's a parallel meaning in the next line. 
And so the two lines have an identical meaning, but it's stated in a different way. Uh, And then there's a particular form in Proverbs chapter 3, verses, and we're looking at verses 1 through 6. There happens to be a path to travel in the first part and a promise. I'm going to read three couplets this morning, verses 1 through 6. That makes up three couplets of two verses each. And the first uh, particular part of the couplet is found in the odd number verse, 1, 3, and 5. That is a path. Then in the even number verses, the second part of the couplet, there happens to be a promise in verse 2, 4, and 6. So let's read together, beginning in verse number 1. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not hesed, covenant love or mercy and truth, forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Now, did you notice the repetition of the word all in this text? And then did you notice the repetition of the word heart in the text? Staying faithful to God at any stage of life, especially the one we're talking about this morning, is a matter of investing all of your heart into God and doing exactly what He wants you to do. Abandoning all. In fact, I will tell you, until you come to the point where you've abandoned all to Him, you're very vulnerable, incredibly vulnerable. And we want to help you with that this morning by looking a little more carefully at this text. And let me put it this way. You can continue faithfully in the faith when you clutch to the promises of God in this Word. There are several things to which we need to clutch. One, clutch to the commands. Clutch to the commands. Now, I can hear some whiny people in our culture saying, Wait a minute. Clutch to biblical commands? Do you know what century you're living in? Do you know what millennium? Do you know what city you are living in? How in the world can ancient commands like this be relevant? Or are they not archaic? In fact, what I read in the Bible, I just think is outright immoral. What do you do with the commands of God in a place like that? In fact, there are some who think they'll have an awful lot more peace and a better life by just simply rejecting the command of God. And once those thoughts inhabit your mind and they take root and they live there, oftentimes without paying rent, then you become vulnerable, vulnerable to doubts. And that is, in fact, to be honest with you, the very first thing that Satan inspired in the hearts of human beings. He came to the Garden of Eden and say, Yea, hath God said? Called into question the command of God. Now, here's the path then in that particular context. Verse 1, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. Don't forget it. Keep it before you and let your heart keep it, uh, to, to keep is oftentimes translated to guard. And so look at it as a treasure that a guard would happen to keep. Uh, look at it as something, the commands of God, as something to treasure, something that you don't want anyone to steal from you. And here's the promise in verse number two. And length of days and long life and peace or shalom they will add to you. For a long time, your entire life then will be marked by the shalom or the blessing of God. Those who clutch to the commands of God 
God promises, in general, will have a long life that is totally blessed of God. Now, which commands uh, should we pay attention to? Well, let me say this to you first. There is then a relationship to a long, peaceful life full of total blessing on one hand and keeping and obeying the commands of God. No one has ever gone wrong by yielding themselves and abandoning themselves to obedience to God. Now, which commands are we talking about? Let me just mention a few here. One is to trust Christ as Savior. To make sure that your trust is in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Second, to follow Him in baptism. He commanded it. Then, to make sure that you are a faithful attender and participant in a biblically defined local church. Chronic absenteeism will hurt you at every step and will undermine you all of the way. Then, be filled with the Holy Spirit. God has some high expectations for all of us, indeed. But you know what the good news is? You've got the power of the Holy Spirit available to you to obey Him. God will come through and will give you the power. You don't walk alone. You don't walk under your own power. In fact, you'll never obey God as long as you try to do that. In fact, you'll get worse. If you'll trust God to come through with power and ask Him for it, then go act like He's going to give it, then He will do so and the Holy Spirit will help you. And then the next, uh, the next command is to know, to know Him. And then finally, purity. Purity before God. Walking in purity. The Scripture says, the Scripture says, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Your purity is precious before God. It is a treasure before God. Whether that happens to be your integrity and what you say, whether that happens to be virginity, whatever it happens to be, it is precious before God. Guard it and keep it and pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord, the Scripture says. Now, let me make it real clear to you. Whenever you begin to drift, your heart cools towards the commands of God. In fact, you may be attending church and be drifting at the same time. I mean, you can drift from a church pew as quick as you can from a bar stool. You can. Drifting from God does not usually begin when people stop attending church. Uh, a uh, failure to attend church, for example, is not necessarily the root of drifting. It can be. But usually when people stop attending, they drifted a long time ago. It happens to be merely the fruit. The root happens to be they grew cold towards the command of God. They begin to doubt God. They begin to not take His command so seriously. And so we've got to be very, very careful that we keep the commands of God. Let me, let me give you this example by, from the research. Baptism happens to be one of them. The research shows that those who were baptized as infants not after their conversion by immersion, but baptized as infants, are 184% more likely to drift than those who were immersed after their salvation. 184%. Now, we don't run around criticizing churches that baptize infants. We're not going to do that. We love them. There's some very sweet, near-dear Christians uh, in those places. But as a Baptist church... And more, as a biblical church, we stand on biblical baptism and we will never, ever abandon it 
for that reason and many more. We've never felt authorized to change what Jesus said about baptism and why anybody feels like they're authorized to change what he said, I do not know. That has confused me my entire Christian life. Now, don't get hostile. Don't get angry towards other people who do it differently. But we're going to do it biblically because Jesus gave the command of believer's baptism and he never authorized any church, any pope, any bishop, any preacher, any congregation to change his command. And it shows up in the research. 184% more likely to drift in this age if uh, sprinkled or poured upon as an infant. But not only that, it gets worse. Those involved in church that were never baptized are 400% more likely to drift in this age group if they were never baptized. Ladies and gentlemen, God's commands strengthen life and empower us for a life of obedience. I've talked a number of times with an older man. He's now in his 70s who lived a rather profligate and reckless life when he was a young man. His behavior led to the bust up of his marriage and he lived in one state. His children lived in another. He hardly ever saw them. And uh, his uh, second and third child have just been a mess his entire li- their entire lives and just can't get it right. And he feels terribly guilty for what he did with them. Now, they lived off and on with him through the years. And while they were there, it was not a peaceful relationship, not a peaceful situation. He didn't do anything to promote godliness in his life or their life. And the guilt he feels is quite overwhelming. And just about every time I talk with him, he feels enormous regret for how he lived his life. He grew up in a church, but he spurned the commands of God as a young man and never, ever returned. There might be some that say, well, he broke God's commands and that's what happens. He didn't break God's commands. God's commands broke him is exactly what happened. You don't break God's commands. They'll stand forever and forever, and they are settled in the heavens. When we violate the Word of God, the commands break us. Take seriously His commands. Clutch to them. But there's a second thing. Not only clutch to the commands, but clutch also to the covenant. Clutch also to the covenant. Now, there are some that would uh, discourage you from walking with Christ by saying, you're taking this too seriously. And you really believe that God gets personal with you. He speaks to you. He directs you. He uh, leads you. Um, and and, and to, to expect to follow God in this world is terribly unrealistic. And you might be tempted to think that you'd fit in better with others if you just simply neglected Him and left Him on His own. Well, the Scripture teaches instead to clutch to the covenant. Now, a covenant in the Scripture happens to be something like a personal constitution that God offers and agrees to with you and me. Anyone who turns to Jesus Christ in faith and trusts the blood and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for our salvation enters into a constitutional relationship, a covenant relationship with God, where He says, you trust me and I become your God. You trust me and I become your all in all. You simply trust me and I will meet your need and provide for you in this life and the next everything you need, especially the grace to follow me. Clutch to that covenant. Now that's what he's saying in verses 3 and 4. Let not mercy, and that's the Hebrew word hesed, often translated in the covenant context, loving kindness. Let not the loving kindness of this covenant that God has given to you or His 
truth, his truthfulness, his genuineness, his reliability, his faithfulness. Let none of these forsake you. In fact, go so far as to bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, here's the promise to that. Here's the promise. You think you may be tempted to think that if I simply abandon him and I'm not so serious about him, if, if I'll drift a little bit from him, even in public, uh, then I'm going to have a lot more favor with others. But look at verse 4. It says something different. And so find favor in high esteem in the sight of God and man. Hey, in the short term, you can compromise and maybe receive the applause of a few friends, but there is nothing like a lifetime lived in integrity with God and reaching towards the end of life. It's a marvelous thing to go on decade after decade faithful to God and missing the little compromises in life that make us vulnerable to unfaithfulness. So keep near to your heart that God sacrificed His Son Jesus to establish a walk with you. Another way of saying this is stay grateful for what Jesus did on the cross to get you and never ever get over it. Make sure you stand amazed before Him with a boiling and blistering and blazing amazement over what Jesus did. And let me say, if there's ever been a time in your life where you, are more, where you were more thrilled with Jesus than you are now, you've drifted. You're in the process of drifting. You're in the process of becoming more and more vulnerable the longer you wait to return to an amazing love with Him. Clutch to the covenant. Now, here's the danger of that. You've got an influence on others. Warren Buffett said, it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. In other words, every one of us is just one step away from stupid. And every month that passes by, and our reckless culture makes it worse. One step away from ruining any kind of influence we have for the name of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, he says in 34, he says, Bad company, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. Listen, if you do not clutch to that amazing love, do not clutch to that covenant God has made with you, by slaughtering His Son on the cross, you become vulnerable and you imperil others, possibly discouraging them from coming to Christ themselves. So clutch to the covenant and clutch to the commands. But there's a third thing to which we can clutch, and that is clutch to the crown. <laughs> Gary Creeman invented the website Match.com, where he matches people for romantic interest, and he lost his girlfriend to a man she met on his website. <laughs> that wasn't a good decision, was it? There's a former Rolling Stone by the name of Bill Wyman. His son is going to marry his ex-wife's mother. That would make Bill Wyman his ex-wife's step-grandfather. I don't think that's a good decision to you. By the way, you know that law against cannibalism? I think there need to be a few exceptions, to be honest with you, okay? 
there are decisions to make, especially in this, this particular age group. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you, but really the most life-changing and substantive decisions that are ever made are made at that time. What will I major in? Who will I marry? Where will I live? With whom will I work? Big decisions. You know what really causes me a lot of indigestion and pastoral heartburn? Is that there are a lot of um, young adults, and, and really some older, because some of these decisions are being delayed now into the 30s and some the 40s, is that so often people make these decisions when they're not right with God and they do not have God's direction in their lives. If you're not right with God, you will probably make a mistake in this area. And you won't realize it until there are children on the scene and you'll break their heart. I cannot tell you just how important and just how critical and just how urgent it is to walk faithfully with God, to clutch to His commands, to clutch to His covenant, and now to clutch to His crown. Make sure that you clutch to His role as Lord in your life. But some, when they make decisions, are tempted not even to consider what God wants. I mean, they, they start figuring. They pull out a piece of paper and list the pros and cons. That's not a bad thing to do necessarily. But quite frankly, sometimes God ignores your pro and con list and sets it aside. And the right decision is made up of other factors you can never imagine or inscribe on a piece of paper. Some figure. And then some go by their feelings. I remember listening to James Dobson one time talk about his book, Emotions, Can You Trust Them? And he said, I spent 200 pages to give one answer, and that is no. You can't. Emotions are great servants, but they're terrible masters. They're great as a caboose, but not the driving engine. I will tell you, most of the time in my life, when I've come to a major decision in my life, and I don't think I'm an exception, I have found that my first impulse, my first feeling is usually wrong. And I've got to set it aside. And I've got to consider what God might want. So some figure, some feel, some look to their friends. What are my friends doing? What's the popular thing to do? I mean, they do that especially with clothing styles and purchases and vacation spots and homes, sometimes the major decisions of their lives. What do my friends think? I wish somebody would put all of these into their place. Sometimes it's good to consider what friends think if they're walking with God. And sometimes when you're uncomfortable with something or you feel a peace about something, a feeling, that, that's good to consider. And sometimes you do need to factor in some things. I understand that, but these are not the first step. The first step is by faith, look to the Father. What does God want from me? And the, the thing I would say to those who might challenge this notion is, are you smarter than God? And do you have the track record that God Himself has? Do you know God has never made a mistake? He's never had to apologize. He's never had to say, oops, I, I didn't consider that. Or I wish I hadn't have done that. Or, you know, I really regret this. God has never had to say that about any single decision He's ever made. And can you imagine from Genesis 1-1 to the present day, how many decisions God has made? My, oh, my. In fact, he's got them all planned out for the future. 
and, and I, I won't get too complicated here or too complex, but I, I don't believe God is bound by time. So everything is in the present tense with God. There's no future. There's no past for God. He's timeless. So everything is in front of him. And it is out of that omniscience, that, that uh, character he has where he knows everything, that God leads and guides his people. Now, that's what verses 5 and 6 are all about. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't reserve anything for your friends. Don't reserve anything for your feelings. Don't reserve anything for figures. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. There may be a point towards the end of the decision making where those things will come into play. But when you begin making a decision, trust the Lord with all your heart. In other words, to what degree do you have confidence in Him that He will come through? And, direct? and then, trust the Lord with all your heart. Withhold nothing from Him. Abandon everything to Him. Then, if you didn't understand that, that means lean not on your own understanding. Don't trust your first impressions. Don't trust your first impulses. Don't trust your first thoughts. Don't lean upon that understanding because it's very likely God's going to lead you to do something you would never come up with if you did. Your understanding is not adequate to have and possess the mind of God. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Submit to Him. Acknowledge who He is. Bow before Him as Lord. Withhold nothing from Him, and that's the path. Now look at the promise. He shall direct your paths. In other words, think enough of God to eliminate all of your thinking and to embrace all of His and exchange thoughts with Him. Guidance then, guidance, divine guidance, comes to those who have surrendered to Him and will do what He wants them to do. In fact, there's a past and present element to our surrender to Him. We get guidance from God. We get His mind on these decisions we must make whenever in the past we've already done what He wants us to do. But if we are disobedient in some area of life, heaven becomes brass and God ceases to guide when we have obviously and clearly disobeyed something He's already said. If we're violating His Word sexually, we can't hear from Him. If we're violating His Word when it comes to what we do with Jesus Christ, we're not going to hear. If we're violating His Word when it comes to church attendance, God isn't going to speak. You see, God has already said what to do. You've got to do it if you expect anything in the future. And if you have disobeyed God in the past and you've left that unresolved, in order to get God's direction for these other decisions, you've got to go back and do what God told you to do and get that right. So there's a past element to His guidance. There is a future element to His guidance as well. If presently you want the guidance of God, you've got to reconcile the past with God and the future you've got to commit to Him. In other words, God knows your heart. And if you will surrender to him and say something like this to him, Dear God, I don't know what you want me to do, but whatever you bring my way, I'm going to do it no matter what the cost. That's my future. Then God will guide you. But if you say something like, God, there are a few things I'm not going to do, God's not going to guide you. You've got to acknowledge him in all your ways. In other words, where would you go to school? You've got to surrender that to him. What you measuring? You've got to surrender that to Him. The type and kind of Christian you're going to marry, you've got to surrender that to Him. Where you're going to live, 
You've got to surrender that to Him. That has got to be all on the altar. In other words, God operates by the doctrine of measure. As you measure this out to God, He'll measure it to you. In other words, God looks at your surrender and measures it and says on a scale of 1 to 10, well, he's got or she's got 1 to 5. So that's how much guidance they give. The rest is going to be a mystery. God doesn't play games with people. God doesn't negotiate. God does not bargain. God calls for a decision. He calls for full surrender. And He will not let anyone that is withholding themselves even get near His Son. Those days are over. Jesus put up with that on the earth. We've got to be fully, thoroughly reconciled with the past, with what God's told us, and fully, thoroughly yielded to His will for the future. When we do that, then what we've done is that we've trusted Him with all our heart. We're not leaning on our own understanding. We're acknowledging Him in all our ways, and He will direct our paths. In fact, I'll tell you, a good dose of verse 7 will help at this point. Did you see that? Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, depart from evil. In other words, fear is to hold God in awe, to be amazed by Him and impressed by Him, overwhelmed by Him, whether it's His wrath or His love, His mercy or justice, whatever it is. But this is what God calls for. So I crown Him, not my figuring, not my feelings, not my friend, uh, not my friends. In other words, the problem with decision-making has never been the decision. God knows what to do. The problem has always been surrender. You win the battle of surrender, the decision's going to come. And it's going to come always at the right time. So I need to say, if you're confused about some decisions that you need to make, that might be a signal of several things. One, it may not be time for you to know what decision you need to make. Right now, I really don't need to know what I'm going to do the morning of April 30th, 2027. I don't need to know that. It's not time to know that. When it comes time at the right time, the Lord will direct me and lead me. I don't need to know what I'm going to do 10 years from now. So if you're confused about a decision, you don't know what to do, it may very well be that it's just simply not time. But it might be that you haven't surrendered to Him. In other words, there's something in the past you need to take care of or you're not fully surrendered to Him about your future decisions. Confusion should not be the standard experience of any child of God. Because God is light, in Him there is what? No darkness at all, and God is not the author of what? No child of God should constantly live in confusion about these decisions. God will be thoroughly, abundantly, and adequately clear. Now, I am really the last person on the earth that should have ever made any good decision. I'm the last person on earth that ever should. I had a real difficult childhood. I've told some of you about that. Incredibly difficult. Alcoholism, suicide attempts, cohabitation, or what we call shacking up, and an early death. My mother drank herself into an early grave at 31. Then I went on to live with a, in a step-parent situation, and there are a lot of lovely, wonderful step-parents. God bless you for being as lovely as you are, but I didn't have that experience. I was in the home with a passive dad and an angry liberal feminist as a stepmother. And it was tough. 
and our presence was resented. But I came to Jesus Christ when I was 16, and God soon began to lead me with what I was to do with my life. My pastor, my church, told me and taught me to abandon my all to Him, and I could trust Him with all my heart, with everything, and He would direct my paths. I was taught that when I was a young man. And so I did go to the right school. I did major in the right major. I sure did marry the right woman. And God directed us and guided us with all of the major issues and the lives of our children. I'll tell you about that sometime one day. But all of these things we've gotten right. And it's not because I have some unusual spiritual skills. All I've got is Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 6. I've, I don't have any more than anyone else. And it's been a lovely thing to be surrounded throughout my life and my ministry and service by lay people and pastors and staff who have done the same thing. I'm not alone in this. Not alone at all. I tell you this for two reasons. Number one, to encourage you. There are very, very few of you that ever went through the difficulties I did as a kid and teenager. And I want to encourage you that if I can make right decisions, you surely can. You really can. With all of the spiritual wealth that God has invested in you, through your churches and through your family, through your pastors and staff down through the years, you can make good decisions. But I want to not only encourage you, I want to challenge you as well. Many of the people who disappointed me when I was younger were church people. I never blame God for it. But they were church people. And I was growing up in a very secular home in a very secular age and place neighborhoods and schools here's my challenge there is never ever ever justifiable cause to abandon jesus or his church if i didn't you shouldn't at all or ever never ever a good justifiable single cause for abandoning Jesus or His church. Jesus Christ is always worthy. And if you're a guest here today, you're from out of town, if in your town where you live, you don't have, you're not attending a worthy church, find one that is. But do not abandon Jesus or His church. There's never a justifiable cause. Clutch to His commands, clutch to His covenant, clutch to His crown. But the truth is, sometimes we fail at this. And what in the world are we supposed to do? You need to know something. God is faithful who's called us into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, the Scripture says. Scripture says also, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful to come through. Do you know Jesus never had to hear a sermon like this? Not one time. And Jesus has never had to be lectured challenged or exhorted to be faithful. And that same God, the Lord Jesus, wants to inhabit your life in such a way that He becomes your shepherd as you follow Him as one of His flock. That is what He is willing to do. That's the role He's willing to play. Look, and if you're not amazed by that, we got some bigger problems to deal with 
that the God of all, the Lord of all, the Master of all, the one that is the highest and most holy and most exalted is willing to enter your life and walk with you every step of the way. Oh, how good He is. It doesn't get any better than that. So right now, we're going to pray in just a moment. And while we do, why don't you turn and yield to Him? If you'll reject a life outside of His guidance and say, no more, I'm not trusting in my own ways. Lord, I'm turning my trust to you. If you'll trust the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, God will make you new and claim you as His own. Will you quickly stand with me, please? And let's talk to Him. Oh God, how good it is to know that you had a faithful son and that he desires to walk in our lives with us. And I want to pray that you'll do a neat work in hearts and lives today to help friends come and bow before Jesus. I pray that when we're done with this service, we'll trust in you with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding and in all our ways acknowledge you and then live as if you're going to direct our paths and we obey you. We ask you for that, O oh God. Help us not to be wise in our own eyes. That, that's a silly thing. In fact, quite foolish. Help us to clutch to you now. Now, we're going to sing a song, and as we sing this song, our staff will be here in the front ready to receive you. Why don't you step out from where you are and come and, and uh, come publicly. Talk to one of our staff members about your spiritual need, and we'll be very, very glad to help you. You're